The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. I invite you to get your Bible out if you have one, or go to the Scriptures. Also, if you came in and were able to grab a bulletin, tells you what the sermon is of the day and also provides a little bit of an outline for you to show you where we're going to be at with respect to the Scriptures. We are, for those of you who have been here regularly, know that we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis, the first three chapters. We're taking a break from Genesis, just because I knew a lot of folks would be gone at the camp today, and so I didn't want them to miss out. So I wanted to stop and pause, um, also just praying, seeking God's wisdom and discernment. What might our church benefit from hearing from your word as we break away from Genesis in light of what's going on in the world today? That's always good to do, to stop, pause. What's dominating the world? What themes are predominant? What issues are at stake? What's everybody talking about? What's the news filled with? And the news is filled with a lot of stuff. Most of it is very discouraging, not edifying. Most of it is negative, but that's typical. So in light of that, that's how I came up with the theme of the day is looking to see what Scripture has to say about the law. And so the title of the sermon is The Law of God in a Godless Age. Also could have said The Law of God in a Lawless Age. Same thing, really. Those of you that are paying attention to what's going on here in America, the news, the front headlines may know that yesterday there was a... I mean, there were protests supposedly all across America for different things, and one in particular got out of hand in Portland, not far from us, Portland, Oregon, where it turned into a riot. First it was supposed to be a peaceful March, then it turned into an ugly riot. About 6 p.m., several people were arrested. That's just kind of typical of spontaneous uprisings of lawlessness and riots that happen. Usually they are politically oriented, and that was the case of this riot that arose yesterday. And it's interesting to see how the news covers it. Depending upon which news outlet you're watching, you're going to get a a bent, you're going to get a twist, you're going to get a spin, you're going to get a perspective, you're going to get a bias. They don't give you all the information because they typically have an agenda of what they want to communicate through those things. So you have to be very careful and discerning when watching the news and interpreting it especially. They're not going to give you the news in light of what God's Word has to say, the Bible, because they don't have a Christian worldview or a biblical lens by which to dispense the information. So everything that you're getting is it's got to spin, so you've got to unspin it, gather the data, try to be objective. What would God say about this? What would the Bible say about this? And so that's just one example of re- recent blatant uh, lawlessness in the public square that made the headlines. Shouldn't surprise us. A couple of verses that I want to open up with just to kind of set the context for these four points on the law and God's perspective of the law and lawlessness, reminding you from scriptures that may be familiar to you. A couple of them are out of the book of Timothy. If you wanted to turn there, I'm going to go to First Timothy, uh, first scripture, and then the second one will follow up in Second Timothy. The first one is from First Timothy chapter four, verses one through four. The Apostle Paul writing this at the end of his life in about the 60s A.D. after serve, serving decades of very faithful ministry and undergoing many, many hardships. He was a, an apostle, but he was also an, a prophet of God, and God gave him divine revelation. And here's two passages, First Timothy 4 and also Second Timothy 3, where God allows Paul to look into the future, into the latter days. This is 2,000 years ago, and here's what Paul says in First Timothy 4, 
starting at verse 1, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit explicitly says, so you can count on it, this is from the Spirit of God, this is a revelation that God gave Paul. The Holy Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, later days, years to come, well, when's that? Well, that's now. The Apostle Paul didn't know when that would be. The Apostle Paul probably, honestly, didn't think 2,000 years would transpire before Christ would return. He probably thought Christ was coming very soon, in his, maybe even in his lifetime, and if not in his lifetime, within that century. That was not uncommon for the Jews to believe that, for the believing early church. So the idea that 2,000 years would transpire after he wrote this was beyond Paul's comprehension. Nevertheless, it's still true. The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, the latter days, years to come, we're living in those latter times. And the more time that goes by, the more true this passage is. That in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. So people will embrace Christianity and many will abandon it. I think this is speaking institutionally, culturally. And we've seen this happen. Where entire institutions, entire nations have abandoned Christianity as their professed religion. I just think recently of Germany. How the Reformation began in Germany in the 1500s under Martin Luther. And the basic essential gospel of salvation by grace through faith spread like wildfire throughout Germany. And that was the hub as it spread all throughout Europe. And then basically a biblical Christian worldview dominated Germany up until the time of the 20th century and the rise of Nazism and Hitler. And that smothered biblical Christianity. And here it is in 2018, and you can hardly find remnants of true biblical Christianity in Germany today. It's amazing. There's an example of an entire nation that once embraced Christianity and then now has abandoned it altogether So that's just one example of how this might be fulfilled, that in latter days, some will fall away from the faith. They'll reject biblical Christianity. So that's true on a national basis. It's also true on an individual basis and also an institutional basis. Institutional meaning things like the Boy Scouts of America. If you look at its history and when it started, there was a basic allegiance and understanding to there was a God and a creator and civility and semblance and the traditions by which they operated were in keeping and consistent with a biblical and Christian worldview. Really, I'm not saying that The Boy Scouts is a Christian organization, but it was definitely infused and started and guided by basic Christian principles. Well, today that's totally been jettisoned altogether, undermined and rejected. So there's an institution that fulfills this as an example, that in later days, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So this is a reminder that demons are real, Satan is real. Satan is powerful. Satan and his demons are supernatural, powerful. They're behind the scenes. They are invisible. That's why they are so dangerous. And they are the ones influencing much of the deception and lies that go on around the world using human beings who are influenced by Satan and his demons and many times not even realizing it. They don't even realize that they are agents of the devil. Kind of like when Jesus is talking to the Jews, the Pharisees in John chapter 8, they were religious They believed in the Old Testament, so they thought. They were teachers of the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament memorized, the Pentateuch, memorized the guardians of the so-called scriptures. You can't get any more religious or so-called biblical, and Jesus said publicly to their face, 
you are sons of the devil. Your father is Satan. Wow. Attention, they will be paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, verse 2, by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. That's the problem. People's conscience. God gave every human being a conscience at birth. That's a moral barometer to discern right and wrong, to discern guilt. And as human beings get older, apart from the grace of God and the intervention of Christ in the gospel, humans on their own reject their conscience, sear their conscience, resist their conscience, and then can't even discern between right and wrong. As a matter of fact, over time, they turn right and wrong upside down on its ear. They call that which is right wrong and vice versa. And that's what happens here. And it's happening on a wholesale-scale basis. By means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with the branding iron. And here are just some specific examples, Paul said, that would be manifest in their wrong thinking, their wrong theology, their wrong living. For example, verse 3, they will forbid marriage. Why does he choose that? Well, the first institution God ever created was marriage. It's in Genesis chapter 1. It is foundational. It is basic. You can't have anything else in life wholesome or functioning properly without it. The basic institution of marriage created in the first chapter of the Bible, in the first week of creation, when God created Adam and Eve on day 6. And he defined it and gave it parameters. And it was holy. It was sacred. Not to be violated. And the, the marriage would be the foundation of family life, which would be the foundation of society, governments, nations, and eventually Israel and the church and the world itself. That's why marriage is so foundational. I think that's why he gives this as an example. Paul probably couldn't imagine this or conceive of this, that there is actually going to be a day when marriage in its very definition is going to be turned on its head, redefined in such a perverted manner. Paul probably couldn't even imagine that happening. Lo and behold, it's happened in our lifetime. Forbid marriage, twist marriage, distort marriage. That's what that means. Pervert marriage, redefine marriage. It's utterly foundational. Marriage is man and woman made one before God. Pictures Christ's relationship with the church eternally. It also pictures the relationship of the Messiah of the Old Testament with Israel who is called God's bride. There are eternal implications there in terms of the testimony of God. That's why marriage is so foundational. So uh, even marriage is going to be attacked at its utter foundation. Uh, not only that, uh, these deceivers will advocate abstaining from foods which God has create, uh, created to be gratefully shared in by those who... Why, food? Well, why is that? Well, because food is very basic. We all need it. We all live by it. It is a universal truth. Wherever you go in the world, regardless of who you are, how much money you make, or what your religion is, you all have to live by food. It's just the basic sustenance. It's what God has given to humanity by which to sustain them and by which they will live. And God decreed early on in the book of Genesis that human beings would live in accordance with food as a gift that he has given to them. And in the days of Noah, he gave meat as a gift to human beings by which they would survive and find their sustenance. And so he's saying that false religion and liars are going to come along and twist that and say that food, which is good and given by God, is not good and should not be accepted. And so we see that today uh, in kind of hyper forms of vegetarianism and environmentalism and people saying and turning it into a worldview saying that we can't eat certain things because it's wrong it's inappropriate it's mean it's inhumane it's not right it's not natural and as a matter of fact animals are on the same par as we are as humans that's really what the issue is is raising the level of creatures 
to that of humanity, which is totally against God's basic design. And that's what Romans 1 says. That's what false worldviews and false religion do. So it's taking gifts from God and distorting them. And that's what, basically, that's what marriage and food are. They are gifts from God to bless people. And even the most basic, rudimentary things that humanity has accepted all throughout history are going to be turned upside down. And that is exactly what we're experiencing today in our world. So just a reminder, Paul had a prophecy and he knew and declared that someday as the, as the world goes on, we're going to see things getting turned upside down, topsy-turvy. And it gets worse. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 now. This is a book Paul wrote just a little bit after 1 Timothy. This is at the end of his life. Once again, the Spirit of God is allowing the Apostle Paul a little peek into the future at the end of the age. And so that's why he says in chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, but realize this. Okay, Christian, he's talking to Christian. Okay, wake up. Realize, okay? Don't listen to fake news. Listen to what God says about the Bible. Here it is. Realize this. Be discerning. Believe it. But in the last days, okay, we're in the last days. We're in the last days. How long do the last days last? I don't know. The apostles asked Jesus that, and he said, uh, it's actually, it's, you don't need to know that. That's the will of the Father. Just be obedient. Be a good steward. Walk in faith. But we are in the last days. So realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. So very important. If you think the world is going to get better and better as time goes on, you're wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. There are dominant worldviews that preach and teach that today. They say the world is getting better. We can reach utopia through certain ideologies, like communism. That's probably the biggest lie in history. Communism can usher in fairness for all, and we can actually make the world better. No, we can't. God said so. This is a cursed earth. People are evil. It's not going to get better. As a matter of fact, according to the Bible, right here, difficult times will come. And Paul goes on in Timothy to say that things will go from bad to worse. That's just reality. We need to have a realistic view of the world in which we live. And Paul's helping us here. In the last days, difficult times will come. So if, you, you're, if you're moaning and groaning, say, man, my life is hard. My life is difficult. All I can say is amen. That's what it says in the Bible. No surprise. Just proves the Bible's true. You paying attention? That's why heaven should be all the more appealing the longer you live in this life. Really. Verse 2, for men, generic for men, humankind, men and women, teenagers, children, all people. People will be lovers of self. See if this isn't true of not just American society, but the world at large. It is. People will be lovers of self. We actually have famous songs winning Grammy Awards with famous singers. These are the lyrics. Love yourself. They will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. Right there. Boastful, arrogant, revilers. That is a total lack of restraint regarding your mouth and your words. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, irreconcilable, that's interesting, the number one reason for divorce, it's called no-fault divorce, since the 1960s, 
before the 1960s, you, you needed a legitimate reason to get a divorce here in California and America, and it was like adultery, abandonment, abuse, those kind of things. But since the 1960s, you didn't need a reason anymore. It's just irreconcilable differences. I don't like my spouse anymore. I like somebody else. How appropriate that Scripture would say that. Irreconcilable. Malicious gossips without self-control. Brutal. Haters of good. Treacherous. Reckless. Conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So uh, Paul warned us. This is what society is going to be like as the world progresses. The life, life is not getting better. Verse 5, it's interesting. They hold to a form of godliness, although they denied its power. They hold a form of godliness. They're not going to abandon their religion. I mean, you can. America is getting more and more corrupt and immoral and blatantly wicked and overtly anti Christian. Yet, if you look at Newsweek magazine year after year, it still says 90% of Americans say they're religious and believe in God. So that, that's not changing. I believe in God, I believe in religion. And yet. The, the wickedness continues to compound and get worse exponentially. It's amazing. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And also that, that wickedness is trickling into the church, the evangelical church. So you've got this compromise also, not just in the world, but also in the church at large, which is very scary, frightening, unhealthy, not good. So there are two ominous prophecies the Apostle Paul gave at the end of his life for the church. They are pertinent to us now. Things are going to get worse. Things are going to get difficult. That's just reality. And we've got to live in light of that reality. So we shouldn't be surprised at the abounding lawlessness and immorality that we see flung in our face day after day after day. It seems to be getting worse and worse. I was thinking about this week when I was a kid, just, you know, 30 years ago, thinking what has transpired in terms of overt wickedness just in 30 years or in one generation? It is absolutely amazing. It's frightening. Because the sin and wickedness that has transpired over the course of 30 years since I've been a child, and some of you are older than me, has advanced exponentially. And I'm thinking, wow, what's going to happen when uh, my children are my age and what's going to happen in another generation? If, it's, if lawlessness and wickedness is increasing exponentially, it can get really bad, really quick. Almost on a scale of what is described in the book of Revelation and what is called the tribulation and what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25 when he described the end of the age. When he said in Matthew 24, I think it's verse 12, where he said that lawlessness is going to abound like never before. Wars and rumors of wars. And Jesus gets very specific describing the end of the age and the proliferation of just utter sinlessness. Lawlessness really is what's at the heart of the matter, lawlessness. And that's what we're seeing even in our own country right now is just utter lawlessness. So let's go ahead and look at that's why I want to emphasize, well, what does God have to say about law? Because a lot of these things that we're seeing in our world today that people are talking about, even the church, there were you know, famous, well-known evangelical pastors making commentary the last couple of weeks about what's going on here in the country uh, at a political level. One law in particular, there's this law called, we have immigration laws here in America. They're laws. The current president did not create those laws or make those laws. Those laws have been in existence since the United States has existed as a country. Every nation has laws regarding their boundaries and immigration. Every nation does. You can't have a nation without laws if you're a nation. If you don't have laws regarding your immigration, you don't have a nation. It's pretty basic. It's amazing how basic it is, and yet people aren't talking about what's really important regarding that issue or understanding just basic law and God's point of view on that. 
But it's the big national debate right now. People are fighting over it, talking around the issue, talking about false things that are even related to the issue. I think about, okay, I've traveled a few places. I mentioned this before. You know, any of you that have traveled, you go anywhere to another country, even if it's if you go to Mexico, like we got a team going to Mexico, 10 or 11 people, we have to follow the rules to go into their It's not our country. We are citizens of America. We're going to Mexico. We're going there as guests, even though we want to do nice things for orphans in Mexico, and we have to follow the rules. We can't go there illegally. So we got to follow their rules at the border and immigration and go through the process of immigration. And if we try to sneak in our 10 people and just violate the rules and not go through the immigration process, we become criminals and lawbreakers. And they, their police, the Mexican police deserve to arrest us, kick us out. It's basic. <coughs> Excuse me. And anywhere else you go, that's every country I've been to is the same thing. Whether it's Ukraine and Russia and India and Siberia and wherever else I go, I have to follow the rules. I have to go through the process. Sometimes I have to get a passport and a visa and pay money to get those things. Stand in line. Why? Because that's the law. We need to follow the law. We need to follow the rules. That's basic. But that's really at the heart of the national debate that's going on right now. I remember when I was a youth pastor years ago, 20-plus years ago down in Texas, southern Texas, it was, I was at a very conservative church, I would say even a legalistic church, and I was the youth pastor. And for years, the youth and children, they weren't allowed to do a whole lot of things. It was just, no, 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 you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. But once a year, they got to go on a youth trip, and we'd get in a bus, travel 10 hours in that bus, down on the border of Mexico, uh, yeah, border of Mexico and Texas, an area, it's kind of well-known, it's called Big Bend. Texas. This is a, a tradition. I was the new youth pastor, didn't know anything about it, and all the youth are telling me, yeah, this is the funnest thing we do. It's a great time. We get to let our hair down and live fancy-free and footloose. Oh, really? Okay, this will be interesting. I'm in charge because I'm the youth pastor. I don't know what's going on. Another couple of adult workers are with me. Get on the bus, travel 10 to 12 hours in a hot, smelly bus, and they, that's exciting for some reason. Uh, and then we go to travel, and we get out Big Ben, and it's like 100 degrees, and it's just all sand and desert, and this is exciting. Uh, for some reason, uh, and it just so happened there was a windstorm that weekend, and this was for three days, and the reason it's exciting is because their parents aren't around, and they don't have any rules, and we're living in tents, and the windstorm gets to blow on, I don't know, like 90 miles an hour, my wife and I and our three-month-old baby, it's so bad, our tent is blown over, sand all over the place, and we ended up uh, hiding or sleeping in a car, but one of the highlights actually of this trip some youth took me, the guys in the youth group, they took me to a secret passage that led to the Rio Grande River. And you, you go there, and then you get on a little boat. And you get in a boat, and then you just travel from here to that, maybe 100 yards, and you actually get to go into Mexico on the little boat. So I did it. It's like we're, They didn't tell me where they were taking me. Get on the boat. Next thing I know, I'm in Mexico. And then they take me into the little shanty town there on the border. And it's a highlight because there's no age limit on drinking so if you're a 14 year old you can go in there and buy a bottle of tequila and so all the youth of my youth group we're going across we're breaking the law and we're going into mexico illegally and they're they're giving a tip of money to the boat drivers and then we go into this little town 
And then we go into these little shanty markets and unbeknownst to me, some of the teenagers when I'm looking, they're buying bottles of tequila. They're not going to use that for communion later. They're using it for something else. So anyway, that was that was at the beginning of this trip that I was responsible for. It got worse from there. It was a disaster. So when I got back, the senior pastor didn't go on this trip and I told him all about it because it was a tradition. He didn't know anything about it because he was never on it. And I said, here's actually what's going on. He said, this is unbelievable. Like it's been going on for years and we put a stop to it. But, uh, but that was one experience I had of how easy it was to, on the, this issue of immigration, just to break the law, no consequences, nobody around. I participated. I crossed the border illegally there and back. And that's just one example. When I got back, I told it, and the pastor and I, we just said, this is lawlessness, this is totally wrong, this is not healthy, this is a horrible example to our kids, uh, this displeases God, and so we just totally nixed that youth trip, and we just created a real, edifying, biblical youth retreat that has become a tradition ever since. So anyway, I just wanted to share that with you, because that was a personal experience uh, that I had at least one time regarding this issue. So let's go to... Uh, some principles out of God's Word. I just want to share four main principles from four different passages in God's Word, just getting back to the basics again of how we should view law. What should be our perspective on things we're watching in the news? What should be our attitude regarding all this debate that we're hearing about um, children being torn from their parents at the border? Like Nazis. I mean, that's that word is being used this week. As a matter of fact, several elected politicians... And anchors on the news said that if you voted for the current administration, you were a Nazi. That was repeated time and time. You're a Nazi. It's just one example of how ridiculous, out of control, extreme scare tactics. Well, what does God's word have to say about law and these practical matters? Well, it does. So we're just laying down principles of how to view law from God's perspective. So... That's why I call it the law of God and lawlessness in a lawless age or a godless age. Point number one regarding the law is let's look at the person behind the law. And that is the law it reveals God's nature. It reveals God's character. The law. Now, I need to define what I'm talking about, the law. The Apostle Paul refers to the law of God. Moses refers to the law of God. Old Testament saints refer to the law of God. Jesus referred to the law of God. He called it the law of God. When Jesus was talking about the law, what was he talking about? When Paul was talking about the law, what was he talking about? When Paul was talking about the law, he was talking about Scripture that he had. Paul was talking about the Old Testament when he, re, he used the word law, capital L-A-W, usually. The written law of God. Scripture. Which is appropriate. So that's primarily what we're talking about. The law of God. Well, what about the law of God? we got the Old Testament, we got the New Testament, and a lot of people say, well, we got the Old Testament is about law and the New Testament is about grace. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That is a false dichotomy. That is not true. The New Testament has law, has all kinds of commands. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. There will be consequences. And the Old Testament is full of grace, God's grace. When Adam sinned, he should have died. He didn't. That's God's grace. King David should have been stoned to death. He wasn't. That's God's grace. Abraham should have been killed. He wasn't. That's God's grace. So the Old Testament is just filled with God's grace. The New Testament is filled with God's law. So they're not mutually exclusive. They go together. 
And so when we talk about the law, we need to understand that we're primarily talking about Scripture as God gave it, as he revealed it and had it written down. And a lot of times it has to do with his commands of what he expects of us. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the law or the law of God. And the law of God, first and foremost, is a good thing. I put a verse down there, Romans 7:12. The Apostle Paul, as a Christian, but also as a Jewish rabbi, talks about the law, explains the law, how Christians should understand the Old Testament law. There's a lot of things we don't abide by in the Old Testament laws anymore. That's not because they're bad laws. But we live by a, a new law, or some of those laws have been fulfilled now. They're not bad laws. They're not inconsistent with God's character. So an example of a law that we don't follow anymore in the Old Testament that was a good law was under the Mosaic law where God commanded the Israelites to honor the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. Don't do any work on the Sabbath, but instead do the things that I ask you to do on the Sabbath, on Saturdays. We don't abide by that law anymore. We don't do it anymore. It's a good law. Served its purpose. It's not inconsistent with God's character. It's actually very consistent with God's character. But it's been fulfilled. And that's why we don't obey it anymore. It's been fulfilled by Christ's coming. Christ is the Sabbath. He's the one who has given us rest, eternal rest, Hebrews chapter 4. So that law in particular has been fulfilled. So a lot of the laws that we don't abide by anymore have been fulfilled. They served their purpose. Some of the laws are still intact. But the law of God, all the laws of God serve many purposes and the main one is when you look at the law in the bible it reveals who god is it reveals god's character it tells us when you look at a law of god it tells us about god that's probably the main thing about laws and what they do laws tell us about the lawgiver, and that's true of the hundreds and hundreds of laws in the bible i put down psalm 119 because there's 176 verses in psalm 119 the longest chapter in the bible 176 verses, almost every verse in Psalm 119 refers to the law of God, scripture, written scripture. Calls it the law of God, the testimonies, the ordinances, the commandments, all these synonyms, but it's all the written law of God. And whoever wrote Psalm 119 loves God's law and loves God. They're mutually exclusive. So if you read the laws in Psalm 119, as you read every single one, it tells you a little bit about what God is like, because God is inseparable from his law. So laws tell us about the lawmaker. Here's a test just to prove it. Maybe you have laws at your house that tells us something about you. Or maybe you got laws in your... If I got in your car as a passenger, you might have laws. Sorry, Pastor Cliff, but uh, you can't put your dirty shoes on my dashboard. Well, why not? I do that on my dashboard. Well, because I don't want my dashboard to get all dirty. Oh, okay, that tells me something about the the lawgiver. Or, Pastor Cliff, you can't eat that donut in my car because you're getting crumbs all over. You can't drink your coffee in my car because you're going to spill it. That tells me about the lawmaker and their character. Here's three examples of laws at home. Three, Three sets of parents who have laws in their home for their children ages birth to 23. As I read the laws in these homes, think about what the lawmakers are like. What does this tell you about these parents? You ready? If you start feeling guilty, I'm not talking about you. I just made this up. Okay, household number one. Here, here are this parent's rules. No shoes in the house. No pets in the house. 
No friends in the house. No TV past 6 p.m. No sleeping in past 8. No electronic devices past 7 p.m. No loud noise. No staying out past 9 p.m. No sleepovers ever. No secular movies. No secular music. And then I added one, no fun. I would say, what does that tell you about those parents? Oh, wow, they're, I'd say they're strict. Notice it was all negative. No, 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 no. There's no delineation of what you can do. You can't enjoy life. It's just all about no's. Negative. Very negative. Kind of legalistic. Not that they're all bad. And not that they don't have the right to make the rules of their house. It just tells us about the lawmaker. Okay, here's household number two. These parents. Say please and thank you. Clean up after yourself. Always do your best. Be kind. Respect your parents. What does that tell you about these parents? Well, it's a shorter list. They're not as complex. They're not as micromanaging. They're somewhat liberating. They're not all negative. Some of them are positive. One of them is right out of the Bible. Actually, a couple of them are. But they're definitely different than the first couple of parents. And then here's the last household. They don't have any rules. No rules. What do you have? Mayhem, chaos, lack of control. There are houses that really exist that are like that. So that's just an illustration to highlight point number one, that when we look at God's law, it is not bad. Romans says very clearly, chapter 7, verse 12, Paul said that the law of God is holy. It is holy and righteous and good because God's law reveals who God is. It reveals his character. It reveals what his desires are, what he wants, what he is like. The fact that God's law is holy means that God is holy. He is sinless. He is perfect. Paul said the law is righteous means God is righteous. Not only is he righteous personally, but he demands righteousness. He is a righteous judge. That's how he acts. And that's also what he expects of his people. So God's laws reflect his character. And God's law is inseparable from God. So when you obey the law, you actually are obeying God. If it's God's law. If you disobey the law, you're disobeying God. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says, I love your ordinances, O God. I, I love scripture. I love your law. I love your written truth. I love your revelation you've given to me. I love the Bible. People condemn us if we say we love the Bible. Oh, that's idolatry. No, it's not. Because we don't separate God from his word. You can't. It's his truth. It's the incarnation of his very thoughts. For our good, for his glory. So the person behind the law reveals God's nature. Law is not a bad thing. God's law is a good thing. God's law is a holy thing. God's law is utterly necessary. We couldn't know what God is like apart from his law. Point number two. After the person behind the law is the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of God's law? We'll start there. Well, it's to restrain the wicked. That is the purpose of God's law, or laws in general. Look, I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 1. Go there. Very specific. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we were there a little earlier. And Paul talks again about the purpose of the law. It was important for Paul to talk about the purpose of the law, the efficacy of the law, that as Christians we don't abandon the law, we don't get rid of the law, we don't despise the law, we don't reject the law, we don't just forget about the Old Testament. It still has its purpose. We benefit from it. 
As a matter of fact, one of the benefits of the law of God in the Old Testament is that it not only does it reveal God's character and who he is, it also exposes us for who we are. It's like an x-ray. Whoa, you're ugly. Yes, we are. We're ugly with sin. That's what the law does. And that's what Paul's talking about here. What is the purpose of the law for a Christian? Because there's a lot of those things in the Old Testament we don't obey anymore because they've been fulfilled. So what was their purpose? What are they for? And so that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 8, he says, but we as Christians know that the law, that's God's law, the Old Testament, we know that the law is good. There it is. Key phrase, if one uses it lawfully, if you use the law correctly, the law is good. The law. Now, Paul said this, meaning something very specific in mind, because Paul, before he got saved, he was a Jew. He was a legalistic Jew. He was a trained rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. But he said he loved the law. Well, he did love the law. But he used the law the wrong way. That's why he put here, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And he's speaking from personal experience. There was a time where I said I loved the law in the Bible, but I used it the wrong way. I didn't use it lawfully. I used the law unlawfully. What does he mean by that? He used it as a legalist. He used the law to try to earn favor with God. He used the law to try to save himself. He, tr- he used the law to try to elevate himself above other people, as though he was holier than other people. He didn't use the law to expose the sin in his own life. He didn't use the law to see God's character for who God truly was. So he didn't use the law properly. That's what Paul means. And people do that all the time. They misuse the law. They misuse authority. They abuse authority. That's like when you have... Most cops are good cops. And every once you got a bad cop, right? you got you got a bad apple just about in every profession. Well, what's the deal with the bad cop? Well, you got a cop who has the authority of law. He's using it unlawfully. Everybody does that in every profession. There's a bad apple everywhere. That's what he's saying. But the law, God's law, it is good if you use it properly or lawfully. Well, what is the proper use of the law? Paul, verse 9, realizing, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man. There it is. If you are a Christian, if you are saved in Jesus Christ and you believe in the gospel, and he has saved you, transformed you, given you his spirit to live inside of you, to make you a saint and a holy person, and you have the mind of Christ, and you're given over to obedience, adoring, and loving Christ, the Old Testament law is not for you. In the fullest sense, Christ has fulfilled the law for you. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, The law was made for those who are lawless and rebellious. There it is. Laws are for wicked people. Laws are for lawbreakers. Laws are for evildoers. Law is for those who can't restrain themselves. Starting from the inside, God gives you and me a conscience to help us restrain ourselves. And if we can't restrain ourselves on our own, then we need to be restrained from the outside, externally. And that's what laws are intended to do, God's laws. So laws are made for wicked people. Laws are made for those who are lawless and rebellious. Laws are made for the ungodly and sinners. Laws are made for the unholy and the profane. Laws are made for those who kill their fathers and mothers. Laws are for murderers. Laws are for immoral men. Laws are for homosexuals. Laws are for kidnappers and liars and perjurers. Laws are for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. 
That's what laws are for. The law is good. The law is holy. So this is profound for us. Stop, pause, and think, okay, what do I think about the law? What do I think about law, laws in general, lawmakers? What do I think about the police? What's my, what's my overall attitude about the police? Because the police are the law. They are law enforcement. He works for the law. Oh, there goes the law. You see a cop car. Oh, there goes the law. Here comes the law. What is your attitude towards policemen? What is your attitude towards the military? They're policemen. What is your attitude towards the Constitution? That's law. What is my attitude towards all that? If it's antagonistic, that's a wrong attitude. That's not a biblical attitude. The law is good. What is your attitude towards laws in the Bible and commands that God gave? It should be sympathetic to commands that God gave. So that's the difference between righteous and unrighteous. So that's a quick litmus test and indicator of where a person's heart is at in terms of their attitude towards law. Government officials, laws in general. You hear people grumbling, complaining, whining about basic laws. Oh, I got to pay my taxes. And they whine and groan and complain and try to cheat about it. Wow, that's a bad attitude. That's very revealing. It's the law of the land. Jesus endorsed that law about paying your taxes. You're, you're at odds with what God requires. So the law is for evil, wicked, sinful, unloving, disobedient people. That's the purpose. That's why we have a lot of laws for little kids. Because when a child is born, it's, Scripture is clear, it's born a sinner. Uh, it says that sin is bound up in the heart of a child. That means that child, when he is born, he or she, she is a professional, seasoned sinner. Wicked to the core. Cute as a button and as wicked as can be. And left to themselves, well, they can do a lot of damage. And that's why you have to restrain them with all these laws. And so that's the goal of parenting. You give them a bunch of laws to restrain them while they're young, and then the goal is to train them and help them be mature, teaching them self-control. Lord willing, they get saved, and they have the Spirit of God helping with their self-control. And hopefully the goal is as they get older, you peel away and take away the restraints and the chains and the laws. And you can loosen the muzzle and the leash that you have on your children so that as they grow older, they become more independent and they can become self-controlled from the inside, and they are a law keeper, not a law breaker, so that hopefully as they leave your house, then they are totally without all these restraints you had for them when they were seven years old. That's the goal, because laws are for sinners. That's why if you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments reveal much about God's character, who He is, but it also reveals a lot about people. So you've got the first four commandments are about loving God. And then the last... Six commandments of the Ten Commandments are about your relationship with other people. Thou shalt not steal. Well, God said that because he knew people would try to steal from others. That's evil. That is mean. That is wicked. That's unkind. That's selfish. That's greedy. That's corrupt to the core. So God knows people are sinful. And so he had to make that law. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God knew that people would cheat on their spouse. That's evil. That is wicked. Don't kill. That's the epitome of a lack of love towards somebody else. That's just utter hatred, taking someone else's life. So God had to give those commandments. It says a lot about evil, wicked people and the restraints that they need. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus said something profound when they asked him, you know, what is the greatest law? And Jesus said, well, actually, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love love God, love your neighbor. And then Jesus and Paul both said that love fulfills the law. Wow, that is amazingly profound. What does that mean? That if you loved as God loves, if you love with the love of God, which only a Christian can do with the indwelling Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit being love from the Spirit of God, it's supernatural. Only Christians can love in a way that God desires and intends. Jesus said, love fulfills the law. 
meaning what? Well, if you truly love someone, you don't need the Ten Commandments. If you loved God and loved man as God loves man, you don't need those Ten Commandments. You don't need a bunch of reminders. If you really loved your spouse, you wouldn't need the reminder etched in stone, do not commit adultery on your spouse. Because you love your spouse, you wouldn't even think of doing that. So love fulfills the law. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal from my neighbor. I'm going to give to my neighbor graciously and serve them, which is just the opposite of stealing. If you love them, you don't need a law that says thou shalt not steal because you love them. If you love God, you don't need all these reminders about how to love God and not to worship false idols. If I love the one true God, I'm not going to be worshiping a rock or a stone. And if I truly know God and love God, I don't need a law etched in stone telling me, oh, by the way, don't worship rocks and idols. No, I, I, I love Jesus. I don't need that reminder. So in a mature Christian, spirit-filled marriage relationship between spouses, the more you love each other as Christ has designed, the fewer rules you need. That's the goal. So in your marriage, and you're Christians, and you have, okay, here are 32 rules of marriage. Whoa, that's probably too many rules. We need, we need a little more love to go around. Love covers a multitude of sins. So reevaluate your laws that are in all of your relationships. And remember, the goal is always to be like Christ, and all of these laws ultimately are fulfilled with the love of God. So the purpose of the law is to restrain the wicked, and the world is filled with wicked people. And that's why we have all these laws. Uh, with, we can't have civility without laws. We can't have a nation without laws. We can't have America without laws. We can't have a nation without laws regarding the border and immigration. That is basic. It's even in the Bible. We can't live with the great diversity that we do and the pluralism that we do where we have different religions, different beliefs. Different ideals, different worldviews. God wants us to be able to live together as a nation with just radically different worldviews. An atheist and a Christian living side by side, civilly in, in harmony. That is possible. Starting with self-restraint from the inside. And if that doesn't work, then it has to be self-restraint from the outside with laws. So we have a rising trend of outright overt hostility towards Christian in this country. And it will, I believe it will continue to increase. But it shouldn't be that way. But we might have to have laws to remind people you can't do that. You can't just go up and kill innocent people just because you don't like their worldview. Well, that's because people are evil and wicked. Let's go on to point number three. So the purpose of the law is to restrain wickedness. By the way, if the purpose of the law is to restrain wickedness, will we have laws in heaven? I don't think so. Why? Because we'll have perfect love. That's amazing to think about. Number three, the power of the law. Go to Romans chapter 13. the apostle paul is talking about now paul isn't talking about the law of god the old testament as much as now he's talking about human laws human government is what he's talking about keeping in mind the apostle paul lived in a fallen corrupt world he lived in a pagan society he lived in the roman empire the authority they didn't have a constitution that was in keeping with the bible they had an emperor who thought he was god basically and a string of emperors that were just utterly evil wicked immoral including the one that paul was living under when he wrote this 
As a matter of fact, the same emperor that he's saying we need to submit to this emperor is the same emperor who chopped Paul's head off. But never do you see the Apostle Paul undermining the emperor or the law. Never do you see Jesus undermining Roman law or even Jewish law. He was submissive to law, subservient to law. He honored law. He respected the law. Same with Peter and Paul. Peter and Paul lived under horribly wicked, evil men who ruled in the Roman Empire, yet they submitted to their authority and realized that God was the one that put these leaders in place and the laws in place. That's why Paul writes in Romans 13, that's point number three, the power of the law, the authority of God. The power of the law, the authority of God. And that's, Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be in subjection. And Paul's talking to Christians, so here's what it literally means. Let every Christian be in subjection. It does apply to unbelievers because this is really God's mandate for all humanity, but specifically for Christians because Christians have the understanding and actually the power to do this and actually obey this, the ability to do this. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Wow. Some people they just resist it and hate that statement that it's in the Bible. Wait, read that again. Let every Christian be in subjection to the governing authorities. What that means is let every Christian here in America submit to the president and the governor and the mayor and the police and the military and the speed signs and the tax law and i can just go on and on because that's what it means and maybe some of those made you very uncomfortable well too bad it's in the bible let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities well why this is a command by the way for christians this is not an option so if you don't do it, it displeases God. If you don't do it, it's sin. If I don't do it, it's disobedient. But he does give us a reason. Why, Paul? There are corrupt leaders. There are corrupt rulers. Well, Paul knows that because Paul's writing this as he's living under the most corrupt emperor there ever was. He is fully aware. But the reason is transcendent. For there is no authority except from God. Yeah, I know there's corrupt leaders, but you know what? They didn't get to power by themselves. God actually put them in power. Every person that is in authority, God put there. doesn't matter who it is. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the worst kings ever, God put him there. The Pharaoh who persecuted the Israelites, God put him there. This emperor who would cut Paul's head off, God put him there. Adolf Hitler was in power, God put him there. God put him there. We elect a president, God put him there. We put him there and God put him there. God's sovereignty reigns supreme. doesn't matter who it is. For there is no authority except from God. So this is unique to the Christian worldview. Unbelievers, they can't understand this principle. For there is no authority, because they always go to the exception. Oh, okay, so we're supposed to submit to Hitler and, and God put him there, really? So God likes Hitler? No, that isn't what it says. God put him there. God allowed him to rise up to that position. Romans chapter 9 is very clear when Paul talks about a very wicked, evil, corrupt, murderous thug of the Pharaoh. And Paul says, through God's spirit, God rose that Pharaoh up to power for God's purpose, for his glory, for a very specific reason. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. All authorities. So this goes all the way down to your piano teacher. To your parents. Well, I, my parents are unfair. They're legalistic. They're mean. Well, they're your parents. My parents are loving. Praise God. Your football coach. That's your authority in your life for now. The principal at your school. The lunch lady. You have to follow her rules. 
Every area of life has authority. That's the structure that God has laid down and God put them all in that position. My boss at work is mean and oppressive. It makes me nervous. Well, God put her there or him there. Obey, submit, pray for, respect, look for a new job. Verse 2, therefore, the one who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. There it is. If you resist authority, then you're resisting God. You're sinning against God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So God's not going to reward you. God's not going to bless you. There will be natural consequences as a result. Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. At least that, that's God's desire. God realizes there will be evil, wicked rulers who corrupt authority because sinful people do that. He's aware of that. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do do what is good then, and you will have praise from the same. So just follow the law. Obey the law. God has established law so that law is out to restrain evil, not good people. That's the general rule from God. And generally that is true. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. A minister. See that right? Verse 4, what is he talking about? Like cops. Cops are called ministers or servants of God. Police are supposed to be servants of God. To sustain civility, law, and order. To protect the innocent. That's what they're supposed to do. That is their job. That's what it says right here. So if you've got a good cop who does what he's supposed to be do, doing, then he is a minister of God. He's doing God's work. Protecting human life. Every human being is sacred before God. Made in the image of God. And this is the basic function of law and government. That's what they're supposed to be doing. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. So... If you break into a store, try to steal something, and you get arrested, that's what you deserve. Expect it. You break the law, you should get busted. You cross the border illegally, you should be arrested. Very basic. What do you call somebody who breaks into your house unwelcome? A criminal. Thou shalt not steal. They're looking to steal something in your house. God says that is not good. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for the sword. See, so ministers of God, like policemen, are allowed to carry things like clubs and sticks and guns to kill the evil people if necessary it's ordained by god right here if you live by the sword you'll die by the sword that's what jesus told peter peter you go and act like a vigilante and protest and start wielding that sword around trying to stab and kill a roman soldier they will kill you and you deserve it that's what jesus was telling peter it's interesting every time jesus ran into a roman soldier he never demeaned him he never disrespected him he never told him you know what you need to quit the army and get rid of all your ammunition as a matter of fact jesus said just the opposite be a righteous soldier and these were usually pagans that he was talking to so they don't carry the sword for nothing for he is a minister of god an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil what do people who practice evil deserve from God's point of view? Wrath. That's what it says right there. Wrath. Well, you won't hear that on the news. What do lawbreakers deserve? Wrath, accountability, prison, punishment, consequences, jail. It's right there, verse 4. And then verse 5. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So don't obey just out of fear of getting caught obey the law out of pleasing god because you're a christian and that's what god requires verse six he gets real practical 
people's pocketbooks. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Pay your taxes. It's a law. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom king, honor to whom honor is due. Amazing. Power of the law. Those in authority have their authority because they were given to it by God. Very important for us to keep that in mind. Okay, let's go on to the final point, number four. The prayer for the law. In other words, how should we pray about government? How should we pray for those who are in authority? How should we pray for our attitudes with respect to the law? Especially for us, the hard thing is when we have somebody in power that's corrupt, illegitimate, contrary to God or the Bible. Well, Scripture speaks to that. At a minimum, we should be praying for those who are in, in power and law. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we close with this. Sometimes we feel helpless. We can't change things. We can't change the structure. We can't change politics. We can't change those who are in power, but we can definitely pray. God answers prayer. Prayer is more powerful than anything. If you know God and pray in keeping with his will. So let's keep praying for those in authority because that's what God expects Christians to do. First Timothy chapter two following, he says, first of all, then in other words, this is a priority. I urge you Christians that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings. Okay, that's four kinds of different prayer. Be made for who? On behalf of all people. And then he starts with kings and all who are in authority. You need to be praying for your leaders, praying for the president, pray for the Congress, pray for uh, whatever government is over you, pray for your governors, pray for your local government, state government, the police, the military, pray for it all. And it's not, dear Jesus, uh, save everybody in politics so that they'll be a Bible-believing Christian. That is not what he says to pray for. He tells us very specifically what to pray for. Here's how we pray for governing authorities over us. Pray for everybody in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's the prayer. God, I pray that you would orchestrate all the authorities in my life in such a way that I can live the Christian life with a clear and free conscience in a way that pleases you in every area of life and that I will not be inhibited by godless laws or godless people. That is my heart's desire. Lord, I lay that before you. That's how God wants us to pray. Because that is being thwarted everywhere all, everywhere in the world by godless, hateful, satanically inspired leaders and authorities everywhere. And here in America, we've been privileged to see this prayer answered at unprecedented levels in history where we can have freedom to be Christians, to pray in public, to pray at the restaurant, to have a Bible study in the park. Unrestrained, amazing. To evangelize openly, to not be arrested for being a Christian. We might be headed that way, but we've got unprecedented freedom we've never seen before in the history of the world. And we need to keep praying this way. Praying for our leaders. That they'll just do their basic job. Restrain evil. That's all, they have. That's all they're called to do. They're not called to solve all of our problems. They can't. Let's close with this. Great reminder out of Philippians. Turn back a couple of books. In light of, if you're a believer, you know Jesus. In light of our attitude towards the law and the fact that we live in a fallen world, a corrupt world, we have antagonists who hate Christianity all around us. They might even be in your own family or at your job. And sometimes it gets hard. How should we live? What should our attitude be? And, and Paul really helps us here in Philippians, and we'll close with this. Um, Philippians chapter 2, look at it, verse 14. 
lot of times this is in the workplace. We're complaining about our jobs. Oh, my job is so hard. It's so toilsome. Yeah, that's what God said in Genesis 3. Yeah, it's painful. You're just living reality, just as God said. And then he says this to Christians. Well, you're different people. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. One translation says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Well, that's easier said than done, right? But we've got to do it anyway. God, we need your help. Well, God, why do you want us to not complain and grumble? Usually we're grumbling and complaining in the presence of somebody else. That's why we know it's grumbling and complaining. There's a witness. You're grumbling and complaining. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Here's the purpose, Christian, verse 15. In order that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. In other words, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. God wants you to stand out and be different. Say you live in a workplace where the boss is a compromiser, unfair, mean. And you're on a team of 15 people and everybody's complaining about the lousy boss. Well, God wants you as the Christian to be the exception and you're the only one not complaining. You're casting all your anxieties to God. God, help me. God, help me be patient. God. And then you stand out. You're like a bright light in the midst of this darkness. And people start to notice, wow, you're different. Why are you different? So you're being a testimony. That's what he's getting at here. In order that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, a, a crooked, twisted, messed up world. God knows. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. There it is. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So there are rewards right now in this life for living a life like that and there are rewards in the next life when Christ comes for living a life like this with God's grace and God's help. May we understand the law of God and live accordingly. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and an opportunity to take a break away from our series in Genesis to look at some practical matters about the law of God and also the law in human institutions. And I thank you, Lord, that you're not silent on the matter. You're very specific. You speak clearly. You correct our thinking. Some of the things you say are shocking and surprising. We don't hear these things on television or in the news or typical conversations. So thank you, Lord, for these amazing reminders of divine truth. And God, now help us with your Holy Spirit. God, we need your help to understand it to believe it, to commit to it, and then the hard part is living by it. God, forgive us for where we've sinned. We've been grumblers and complainers. We've mocked leaders, undermined them, despised them. And you say that's evil and wicked. We thank you that Jesus died for even those sins. And we thank you for that forgiveness. God, we just commit our day to you. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.